This is the Bluegrass Beat Podcast. News, training, and first-hand accounts from Kentucky's leading law enforcement professionals and instructors. And here's your host, Critley Kingsmith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bluegrass Beat. I'm Critley Kingsmith. We are starting a new year and a new season with a very important topic for both law enforcement and telecommunicators. Stress, wellness, and coping with not only their high-paced, high-demand careers, but also with critical incidents. Joining me today is Kentucky Department of Criminal Justice Training Instructor Gabe Gillingham. Prior to joining DOCJT, Gabe was with the Hopkinsville Police Department for more than 10 years and served as a U.S. Army police officer. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Thanks, greatly. I greatly appreciate it. Here in DOCJT, you work in the resiliency section and are involved with our Kentucky Law Enforcement Post-Critical Incident Seminar, also known as KYPCIS. So can you tell me about resiliency training here at DOCJT and about the KYPCIS seminar? The resiliency training that, that's been taking place over the last couple of years, there were four or five of us when we first created the section that went and received special training about building resiliency tools. What we really liked about what we were learning is that it's not just so much job-specific or job-related, but life in general. The more and more that we are getting into this topic and learning more and more, the stressors that we deal with day in and day out aren't necessarily work-related. It's making sure that mortgage payments are done and our kids are healthy and our spouses are doing well and our extended family is healthy and well also. With a lot of the topics that have been introduced within the resiliency section, it's really looking at more of that work-life balance. Right, yeah. And and how to manage that, especially with some of our younger officers and, and telecommunicators as their families grow and assisting them to teach their children resiliency as they grow up in this profession. Right, how awesome. That's great that, that y'all are giving them those tools. It, it's been very beneficial. So with uh, the Kentucky Post-Critical Incident Seminar, just a, a quick history on it. At the time, well, Larry Conley, who is now uh, moved on and he's the supervisor over leadership, when he had retired from Washington State Police and came back home to Kentucky, he was talking with Travis Tennell, who was a branch manager here at the time, about what services are provided for officers after a critical incident here in Kentucky. That was 2015. There was nothing going on in Kentucky. And they had heard about a post-critical incident seminar being run by South Carolina. So they had made contact. Eric Skidmore, he's the, the guru over South Carolina and their law enforcement assistance program. And they went and observed. Uh, they were kind of tricked. They said observe, but they show up and they participate in the program, and they were sold on it from there. Come back, took two years' worth of planning, and in 2017, September of 17, is when we held the very first seminar. It is evidence-based. Well over, at that point, 30 years, the FBI started it in 1985. South Carolina picked it up. I want to say they held their first one 96 to 98, somewhere in there. 
they tweaked some things, added telecommunicators to it. So with that evidence base over that period of time, having mental health professionals available for every single participant to have that interaction with them, to, to normalize those interactions. And while the, the mental health professionals, they are guiding those conversations and other resources during the seminar, it is all peer-driven. What we have found, having those peers who have been through similar critical incidents, experienced very similar reactions to those incidents, but using resources to move forward, having those individuals available, it's paramount. We absolutely have to have them. Do you find that because there's that relatability that they open up a lot more having peers there instead of it just being maybe mental health professionals? It is. So with having peers there that have had those interactions, positive interactions with mental health professionals, cops trust cops. Right. So if one of our brothers or sisters are saying, no, it's going to be okay, like just, just go, go in there and talk with them. I they believe promise it. you. Yes. They, they believe it, and it lowers that, I guess, that, that inhibition from, oh, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's, that's bad. Because from the time I can remember coming up in the profession, it was always taboo to even talk about some of the experiences that you're dealing with or even mention the term a mental health professional or or anything like that. There was that fear of automatically being blacklisted within the agency. Right. Having our brothers or sisters sitting there saying, no, like I promise you it's it's going to be okay. You can go in there and, and they get it. That it's actually a place to get help or, or be able to relate so who specifically can attend KYPCIS? I know, it, like you mentioned, it's been opened up to include telecommunicators as well. Yes. When we very first started, unofficially, telecommunicators were eligible to come. And then uh, I think it was 2021 or 2022 when the Lifeliner Act was passed legislatively. That terminology was specifically added to the KRS. So we take... Of course, active law enforcement, telecommunicators, and their significant others. Because what we have found is while the officer or, or dispatcher, they come on their own and they, they see the benefits of the program, they have the ability to come back mm-hmm. and bring that person with them. What is the benefit of having that spouse there and being part of that experience and that learning process with them? Well, I can tell you uh, personally... I attended uh, the third PCIS. That was June of 2018. And I brought my wife with me. There were aspects of my incident. Mine was more military related to combat deployments. But I never shared any of that with my wife. She knew, like, stuff happened. She knew I was different when I returned home. But being amongst that group, of my brothers and sisters and I guess that sense of security being around all those individuals allowed me to voice every aspect of that incident. I'm assuming it would help, um, in this case, her have more perspective. Yes. It was an aha moment for her. Like, now I get why you reacted in certain ways after 
you know, my son spilling his drink or or something like right. that. Because I was I was walking around. We we call it our daily wear on a, on a barometer scale of zero to ten. I was walking around at an eight or a nine every single day, all day. So just the little minute amount of stress or something not going the way I had envisioned automatically put me at a 10. So her being able to hear all of that. Now, granted, there were some, there were some conversations after that because the, the biggest reason I never shared any of that with her, it was one, because I was protecting her from what the world was through my perspective right. and my experiences. My internal talk was so negative about my experiences that if I tell her or if she knows, then she'll see me for what I see myself as. And I, I couldn't bear that. But her hearing all of that for the very first time, she was able to come back and have that conversation with me. It was like, I don't see you that way at all. You're, you know, you're the love of my life. We've been through hard times, but you performed and did everything that you had to do in order to be with us. So the seminar essentially, you know, helped you all have that conversation that needed to occur. Yes. So I think most of our listening audience would agree that the life of an officer or a telecommunicator is a stressful one. But can you go over what are some of the day-to-day stressors that they might encounter? Oddly enough, this last year, there has been a, the in-service that's been online, Skills for the Patrol Officer. We have an eight-hour block in there where they have to go in and they have to read certain articles. And, and one of those is about family stressors and just different things that they encounter day in and day out. And a lot of the responses from what we got back on those discussion boards, it came down to it's not so much the operational stress, the, the day in and day out, like handcuffing people, going to certain calls, well, that's that's distressing to a, an extent. Most officers and dispatchers are naturally resilient. They have more troubles dealing with the organizational stress. And what we mean by that is the, the politics within the agency, within the city or the county, policies that are coming down. The other aspect of that is... Like I mentioned earlier, the, the work-life balance, missing birthdays, missing holidays, that is more what we see in those discussions as to what their main stressors are. Critical incidents, it is a different level. And when we teach classes, we, we make sure to tell people not all stress is trauma, but all trauma is stress. And there is that difference it's just really important for them to understand that, especially in terms of critical incidents. Anything that we discuss in any of our classes, those ramifications that may come from that, it's it's not set in stone. This is a can happen, not a you've been to a fatality collision and there's there was a toddler involved, you're going to have problems. We work very, very hard to make them understand that you may not experience anything after that. And that doesn't mean that you're heartless or you're, you're just a naturally resilient to that type of experience. Right. Not to, not to beat yourself up because you think you're supposed to have emotions that you're not having. Right. 
are there things that officers or dispatchers might not even realize are stressors that are affecting their physical or mental well-being? So living with prolonged stress, or we look at things like acute stress disorder or post-traumatic stress, the longer that you live with those things, it is going to have a ramification on your physical self. It's well documented over uh, the last 30, 40 years, some of those things that may creep up on you. And we can see cardiovascular disease, diabetes, gastrointestinal issues. And a lot of that is our endocrine system is being thrown out of whack because of that stress, because we have the increased cortisol levels and cortisol is the stress hormone. It's affecting the the total body. Right. That can lead to other issues as far as vitamin deficiencies, low testosterone, increase in excess body fat composition. They're even linking some of that stuff to cancer development. Wow. Driving to that point of reducing the stigma to where individuals can go seek the assistance that they need in a timely manner has been the primary focus of what the resiliency section is doing right now. How would you suggest that they handle on-the-job stress? Probably one of the best ways is identifying that person that you can speak with. They don't have to be someone within the agency. It doesn't have to be someone at home. A trusted individual. When we teach the resiliency class, we talk about a concept that Dr. Ockberg had developed years ago the concept of a board of directors. Those individuals within your life that have had positive influences that you know that you can lean on during times of stress or uncertainty. We tell them, make that board very diverse. You want people from all your aspects of your life that you can lean on. The way I explain it to them is for anyone that dabbles in investments and finances and you go sit down and speak with a financial advisor, they're going to tell you to diversify your portfolio. Right. So that way, if you take a hit in one area, you're not completely ruined. It's kind of the same concept. If you're down to just one person on your board, they may be having their own struggles right now with something. They might not even be able to be as supportive as they want to. Right. So you, you don't have anywhere else to go. So it's really important to look at all those aspects of your life that are important to you and who's involved with those. The other aspect of that is to let them know that they're on your board. You appreciate everything that they've done for you throughout your life. You value their input into what you have going on with yours. Having that is absolutely key because, again, a lot of what we're seeing is that work-life balance. Making those plans to look at your current situation what would be the ideal situation and establishing goals and working through those goals to get from where you're at now to where you want to be. And we do extensive work and exercises within the resiliency class that we teach that give them the tools to do that. Uh, You know, I think that self-care has almost become like a buzzword (laughs) in modern culture. But, you know, really, how should officers or telecommunicators who have these really high-stakes careers take care of themselves mentally and physically? It's important to to say this. Everyone that gets into the, the first responder culture, 
we are very duty driven. I, I was raised by my parents that my life should be a life of service, but we do get stuck in that and it's everybody else's needs before our own. So it, first and foremost, you have to learn how to be selfish for yourself. You need to put yourself back on the list. Yes. The important aspect of that is to have that conversation with, with your family and the individuals in your life where you do put forth a lot of time and effort to have that open and honest conversation of, I'm going to do this for me and this part, this is what I need right now, and that, that's non-negotiable. So if it's, you know, I get home at the end of my shift, the first 30 minutes I am home, that is time for me to regroup and work on practicing a little bit of mindfulness, grounding myself, being present back in the moment, and then I can I can participate and be a part of the family. But that 30 minutes when I get home, that's... Kind of like a decompression. Yes. We mentioned the day-to-day aspects of stress on the job. And really quickly, I want to circle back around to the purpose of why we host KYPCIS. So many officers and dispatchers will unfortunately be part of a critical incident within their career. What qualifies as a critical incident? What qualifies as a critical incident, and this is probably what's more unique about our program versus some of the others throughout the nation, in all honesty, it's anything. Any event that has occurred throughout your life that has overwhelmed your ordinary coping skills, that, that can be viewed as a critical incident. A lot of the times that we may struggle is the things that have worked for us in the past, moving through some of these incidents, they don't work anymore. If I used to have hobbies or I'd go to the gym after work and that usually helped me get through things, but now after an event that's occurred, I you know, I go work out and by the time I get home, I'm just tired. I'm still thinking about it. It's still circling there in my brain. I'm not talking about it to anybody. I'm avoiding every aspect I can of it, but it's still sitting there. Because what we have found, as much as we would like to say that home is home and work is work, there's no magic switch. Right. It kind of ends up all blending together. It does. It does. Uh, what, What happens at home impacts us at work, and what happens at work impacts us at home. As much as we we try for that not to happen, it does. So you mentioned that, you know, when you were coming up through law enforcement, people worried about the ramifications if they sought help for a critical incident. Right. Is that changing any? Is there anything that we can do, you know, to change that perspective? So it is changing, and it's, it is changing for the better. The outpouring support that we have had for the program, not just from the Justice Cabinet or the governor's office, but from the chiefs and sheriffs across the Commonwealth. Because, in all honesty, we're probably getting maybe half a dozen calls a month from executive staff members saying, you know, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a dispatcher that had this happen and, you know, they're struggling or an officer or a deputy. And they're openly calling before it would have been, well, we're not going to involve any, anybody else. Right. or any outside agency, and the thought process is changing, where we'll typically see that someone is struggling is decrease in work performance. Their numbers are down. Uh, they're, they're using more and more sick days. 
And a lot of that just gets equated back to they can't handle work today and it's easier to call in sick than it is to take a vacation day because that typically has to be scheduled out in advance. And and the leadership is now understanding that a, a drop in work performance like that is indicative of something else that's been going on. So they're looking at those things, looking at those numbers, they're looking at the behavior of their officers, their dispatchers, and they're going back now and looking at, oh, well, what type of calls for service have they handled over the last six months instead of falling back on the discipline? Uh, because that's typically how those incidents were handled in the past. It was, uh, well, your numbers are way low, bud, and you either get them up by next month or, you know, you're going to answer for it. The change has happened because of uh, the resiliency section being embedded in training ops here at DOCJT, where we are constantly in the faces of recruits, in-service officers, executive staff members, and we have extensively normalized what it looks like to have an employee in distress and what it looks like to access resources. It's actively getting that message out to those who need to hear it. Yes. Awesome. So you, you mentioned the significant impact it made of your wife attending KYPCIS with you. Besides attending a seminar with their uh, significant other, what can families of these professionals do to help their loved one get through something? The biggest thing is hold space. That is the biggest thing. I've been doing uh, peer work now for going on six years. And some of the most impactful experiences that I've had of a, as a peer, and usually those interactions can take 30 minutes, maybe an hour, sitting down with someone doing a one-on-one -on -one peer encounter. I've said maybe a dozen words in that entire 30 minutes to an hour. And it's just holding space with that individual. Being that comforting presence that, you know, you don't have to talk about anything that what you've just experienced, but I'm here and I will be here. And we ultimately will work through this and we will get to the other side of this. A lot of times what we end up feeling is... No one can relate. I'm the only one that is feeling this way, that's experienced this, that leads us to feel like we're ultimately and utterly alone on this island. So holding that space and just reminding them that there is a we to this, that they are not alone going through this. I know this year we're having more seminars than ever, right? Yeah. Yes. So... Uh, like I said, when we started in 2017, it was kind of piecemealed together, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, since then, we were very blessed. Our administration at the time went and testified before the legislature and developed our KRS, 15518. With that, it established our own funding, and we are currently across the nation, we are the only program that is state-funded. Every other program out there, they're all 501c3s. So it's donation-based, and that limits how many seminars they can hold a year. There are some, some states they only get to hold one because of the cost that's incurred. So we, we have slowly progressed. It, it seems like it's been very, very quick. 
but we progressed to three a year, then four, and now we're up to eight a year. We have uh, seven what we call regular seminars, and we have one, this will be the second time that we've run it, one solely for executive staff members. So what we mean are, of course, chiefs, sheriffs, chief deputies, deputy chiefs, and 911 directors and their assistant directors. Right. And at, at KSP level, post commander and above is allowed into that seminar because they do have different stressors at, at their level. Plus, many of them are sitting on trauma from 15, 20 years ago that has impacted their careers throughout their entire time within the profession. Now, how does someone sign up? So we are different from other in-service. You don't go through letters to register for the course. You have to go to our website. We'll definitely link that below or in the show notes. And that is how you register. For everybody listening also, the important aspect for everyone to to know is when they established RKRS, they also established confidentiality. Any contact communication from the officer, the dispatcher to the program is confidential. Uh, they are the holder of that privilege. Whoever that person is, they get to decide whether anyone else knows that they've been in contact with the program. It, to include their attendance, we've gone through great painstaking planning and meetings about getting everything lined out when records and letters and all of that to to ensure the confidentiality of that individual. Some of the other aspects of what the resiliency section has really tried to expand and bring throughout the Commonwealth are peer teams. Like I said at the beginning, having peers available, it's paramount within any agency because what we do know from decades of research that actually went all the way back to World War One, is, is having those individuals available. The quicker that we can apply psychological first aid after an incident, it increases the likelihood that they will never need to sit down with a mental health professional. So with that, uh, there are a few of us that went and became instructor certified through the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, and they're kind of the, the gold standard on peer support uh, within first responder culture and dealing with the aftermath of critical incidents, whether natural or man-made. So uh, that has been one of the, the largest introductions uh, that we have done throughout DOCJT is to bring in those classes so agencies can start to establish their own peer teams. In fact, uh, there was legislation passed last year, uh, KRS 65-1591, which allows agencies to establish those peer teams, and it also provides confidentiality within those settings as well. Uh, because It gets them closer to help, too, by having it within their own agency. Yes, yes. Um, and, and if anything else, it, so what that does is it may be that officer, that dispatcher, their very first time reaching out for help with what they're experiencing. And we want that to be a positive experience. So that peer can be that gateway. Uh, they can be that positive experience. They, they can be that sounding board. And they can say, I really, really think that you would benefit from talking to this individual. 
meeting a, a culturally competent mental health professional. Right, right. And it, it does reduce that stigma uh, within the culture and within the agency. And it gives, I'm assuming, that, that mental health professional credibility to that officer. Yes. By having someone within their, their peer group. Yes. And them. Absolutely. That has been one of the, the larger pushes that we have done probably within the last year and a half, two years, is going through the process to be able to bring that to uh, DOCJT. Because the benefit to that is, uh, yes, you can go through the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation and pay for the courses. Of course, everyone knows how we're set up. They come to us for training for free. Yes. So we incur that cost to be able to bring that to the agencies across the Commonwealth. And currently, uh, this next year, we have uh, four of those. It's a 40-hour peer support class where uh, the ICISF classes are brought into one 40-hour class for agencies. That class is comprised of assisting individuals in crisis and group crisis interventions. So we still left those two classes separated out on their own to make it easier for uh, telecommunicators to come to one of those trainings. Gotcha. Uh, Whereas they're only required the eight hours annually, and it is harder for them to get away for 40 hours. Uh, So we still left those classes separated out on their own. But any of the classes within the resiliency section, telecommunicators are also eligible to take any of the the classes that are on the LE side within the resiliency section. Uh, so they they can take our 40-hour resiliency, they can take our 40-hour our stress and wellness, and anything else that we do. And lastly, what would you want to say to someone who, who might be listening, who has experienced an incident that they're struggling with and might be resisting reaching out uh, for assistance and support? Do you have any advice or encouragement for them? What I would say to them is, you're not alone. We have all had similar experiences. This is stuff that we as humans are not designed or intended to see and experience. Uh, It's outside that normal realm of human experience. And it is okay to not feel okay right now. We as first responder culture, we have no problems responding to these incidents. We need to take that same level of courage in responding to ourselves. Because it, it's it's just like getting on an airplane. I mean, the, the flight attendants, you know, they tell you when the when the mask popped down, what are you supposed to do? Put your own on first. Put your own on first. Uh, that That's how you're going to be effective and continue to help others around you. You have to take time for yourself. All right. Well, Gabe, thank you for talking to us this afternoon and sharing some very important information. And thanks for being on the show. No, thank you for having me. And everyone, thank you for listening. As always, more information about today's topic can be found in this episode's show notes. Remember, you can find us on DOCJT's website under the training tab, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Critley King-Smith, and you have been listening to the Bluegrass Beat. We hope you join us again. We strive to make this podcast entertaining and informative. If you would like to reach us with a comment or suggestion, contact us via the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the Bluegrass Beat wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This has been a Team Kentucky and Department of Criminal Justice Training production.